Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by RamShirts.com, the company that brought you Crush City Tees. Ram Shirts offers custom printed and embroidered apparel. They offer direct-to-garment printing for small runs and screen printing for larger runs. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Ram Shirts. Visit RamShirts.com for all your custom apparel needs. If you want to enter the giveaway, simply email the phrase Let's Go to Astros Baseball Podcast at gmail.com. Speaking of Let's Go, go to Facebook. And join the Astros Facebook group, Let's Go Astros. And you can find some content of mine as well as links to all of the show. That's Let's Go Astros on Facebook. And that's Let's Go Astros to Astros Baseball Podcast to win a shirt or a custom dugout mug. Without further ado, my guest today is Andrew Marinus. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan for the fans of the Houston Astros. Hey guys, thanks for tuning into this episode of Astros Baseball. My guest today is Andrew Marinus. I had to practice saying his name like the Mariners. Andrew Marinus, uh, New York Times bestselling author. And I brought him on today to talk about his new book, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, but it comes out March 2nd, which is in a couple of days. It's called Singled Out, The True Story of Glenn Burke, who happened to be the first player in Major League Baseball history to come out as gay to his teammates. Andrew, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Rob. I'm excited to talk to you about this book. So what made you... Want to tell the story of Glenn Burke? Yeah, so this is my third book, and it kind of fits with the type of story that I'm interested in. My first book was a biography of Perry Wallace, who was the first black basketball player in the SEC. He played at Vanderbilt in the late 1960s. Uh, My second book was called Games of Deception. It's a story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team which played at the 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany. So both of those books were about sports, but also about history and, you know, the issues of racism or anti-Semitism, fascism, uh, and those two books. And this one, you know, a book about a baseball player, and baseball has always been my favorite sport, but, you know, also uh, an, is- an interesting social issue, too, with him being the first openly gay player and the um, – you know, he's coming along in the 1970s at the same time as uh, a gay rights movement in this country and a backlash to that movement. So I thought it would be an interesting way to write about uh, American culture uh, and baseball. And it was a real pleasure to do the research and the writing for this book. And you're right, it comes out March 2nd, which is uh, Tuesday. Um, so I'm really excited just with the countdown to the publication of this book. Did you know who he was before you started writing this book? 
Not much. You know, I remember uh, his 1978 Dodgers baseball card. Um, I remembered that. I had heard some trivia about him also, you know, being the inventor of the high five. But I honestly didn't know much of his story at all, which made it, uh, I think, even more fun to research because everything that I was learning was brand new to me. Um, and so the whole story, every aspect of his story was something I was learning for the first time. I had a chance to interview a lot of his minor league teammates, uh, his major league teammates like Dusty Baker and Davey Lopes, Joe Simpson, uh, Jim Riggleman, you know, names that major league fans would recognize. A ton of minor leaguers who in some cases probably hadn't really been interviewed since the 1970s. You know, if they only made it to double A ball, um, they hadn't had a chance to tell their baseball stories too much. So they had a lot of great things to tell me. Uh, and really, I think in writing nonfiction, the research phase of the book is the most important, even more important than the writing, you know, because every single sentence in the book has to be based on something that you've discovered through the research, whether that was interviews or reading old newspaper articles, reading, uh, you know, other books about that period in baseball history. Uh, and so that, I think, is the most important part, but also the most fun part for me. You talk about the 1978 baseball card. I think I have a bunch of cards from that era. And now yeah. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go look it up. See if I have any of his. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, th I, there, there's a the guy that does the Spanish broadcast uh, for the Astros, Alex Trevino. Mm -hmm. And I had bought, you know, for like a dollar, this thing of cards at a at a pawn, not a pawn shop, but a uh, flea market. Yeah. And it just it was just a book. And it just happened to be full of Astro cards. And there's like three cards of him in there. I mean, that's like, <laughs> so you never know what you're going to get. Maybe I'll have it. But uh... yeah, you never know. Um, so, I, you know, I'm 50. I just turned 51 last week. And my first set of cards was the 1975 top set when I was five years old. Uh, apparently, my parents say, you know, that's how I learned how to read was just reading the back of baseball cards. And so that whole mid-70s to probably 1990-ish, uh, I bought either, you know, packs of cards at the drugstore or as I got older into high school, I was buying the top sets. And I had remembered Glenn's 78 card when I got started working on this book. And so I went digging through my old shoe boxes and foot lockers full of all my old baseball cards and was happy that I still had it. He's wearing his Road Dodgers uniform. Uh, swinging the bat. It's an obviously one of those pose shots that Tops used to love to do back then. Uh, I think maybe at Candlestick. It's kind of hard to tell what stadium he's in, but he's following through with his swing. And I just remembered for whatever reason having that card and not really knowing who Glenn Burke was in 78. When, you know, I'm eight years old. I probably knew players like Steve Garvey and Davey Lopes and Ron Say, but didn't really know Glenn Burke as a kid. Uh, you know, he didn't he was a fourth outfielder, essentially, with those veteran Dodger teams. But he had started game one of the 77 World Series, which was one of the things that I learned in the research of my book. Uh, Lasorda liked having him in the lineup at that point against left-handed pitchers. He started two games in the 77 NLCS uh, against the Phillies against Steve Carlton. And, and another piece of trivia about Glenn in that 77 playoff series, he became the first Major League Baseball player ever to wear Nikes in a game. Uh, this was before Nike made baseball cleats, but Glenn had, 
become friends with a guy who ran a shoe store in Santa Monica. And it was uh, called the athletic department. It was early in Nike's existence. And they had a few shoe stores on the West Coast. And they sold some soccer cleats there. Not even cleats, but they're AstroTurf shoes for soccer. Glenn really liked them. He bought them. He dyed them blue. And he wore them on the AstroTurf at Veterans Stadium and became the first baseball player ever to wear Nikes. I write about that a little bit in the book um, because, you know, as of last year, Nike is the official uniform supplier of Major League Baseball. And the relationship between Nike and the Major Leagues really goes back to Glenn Burke in those 77 playoffs. So let's go to, like, when he decided to come out. From from what I've read, you know, researching him, it's it seemed like the team already knew. We, you know, like, I, I have a nephew that came out. And we could tell since he was a little kid, like when he told us, we weren't shocked. But, I mean, I guess they could already tell. Yeah. So, you know, and you introduced this uh, segment perfectly as the first major league player to come out as gay. You know, even the subtitle of my book says the first openly gay major league baseball player. And I think that the way you said it is is more nuanced and it is, um, is correct. It's kind of hard to go through that level of detail in just the subtitle of a book but his teammates knew um, going back to his minor league days when he would have uh, you know men in his apartment and some of the players were starting to figure it out or that he wouldn't go out um, as much after games with his teammates you know and they'd wonder where is Glenn or they'd try to set him up with a, a woman and he would come up with an excuse why he couldn't hang around. One time he told his teammate he had to go shopping. And the guy's like, it's 1130 at night. Where are you going to go shopping? You know, and so Glenn was always um, trying to extricate himself from these situations. And so players were gradually starting to pick up on it. Um, Dusty Baker and Lopes, they, they knew when Glenn was a member of the Dodgers. Um, management of the Dodgers figured it out and tried to pay off Glenn to get married. You know, they wanted to cover it up and thought that if he got married, they wouldn't have to deal with it, you know, as a public relations issue. He refused to go along with this payment uh, or bribe, you know. Um, that's why he was traded to the Oakland A's. He didn't actually come out to the general public until 1982, which was two years after his last professional game. He only played in AAA in 1980. Um, and he came out through an, a magazine article in Inside Sports Magazine, and also on the Today Show, in a live interview with Bryant Gumble, And so that's when the whole world knew. But like you said, or, you know, his teammates knew. And also during the offseason, he wasn't trying to hide who he was. He was living in the Castro District, which, you know, was the, the, the gay neighborhood of San Francisco that was very strong neighborhood in the 1970s. And Glenn was very visible there. It's interesting to think, you know, this was before social media before everyone carrying a camera in their pocket on their phone, you know? And so it was almost like he was protected and safe um, existing, you know, as an openly gay man in the Castro during the baseball off season, didn't have to worry that, you know, that that secret uh, in the baseball secret would be exposed. I, w I was reading earlier, like, like I told you, he was accepted by his team. I saw a quote from Davey Lopes. He said, no one cared. And uh, but 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 like you said, this was the next thing on my list here is that the general manager offered to pay 
to, to pay for him to go on a lavish honeymoon if he would marry a woman. And he's like, why would I want to be with a woman? Yeah. So and this is, um, sorry, an, go ahead. A, another interesting thing I found that I'm sure is probably in the book as well is, and I see I'm learning about him just like you did in your research is that Tommy Lasorda's son, he, he befriended him and that kind of made Tommy Lasorda a little mad. That's right. Tommy Lasorda's son, Tommy Jr., was gay. Um, and Glenn and, and Spunky was Lasorda Jr.'s nickname. We're friends. And, you know, some people want to know, were they more than just friends? And uh, Glenn would never say. He said that was none of anyone's business. Um, but regardless, um, they knew that Lasorda Sr. would not like their relationship, whatever extent of relationship they had. And one day they decided they were going to pull a prank on Tommy Sr., and show up on his doorstep as if they were on a date with Lasorda Jr. dressed in pigtails and women's clothes. And Glenn <laughs> Burke was quoted as saying that first Lasorda would have shot them and then he would have died of a heart attack. You know, so, um, yes, Glenn was friends with, with Tommy Jr. I think that goes um, a lot into the fact of why the Dodgers wanted to get rid of Glenn Burke. Lasorda wasn't happy about that. Al Campanis wasn't happy about that. And so, after the 77 season, in which Glenn has had a pretty good season, Rick Monday was the starting center fielder, but he had a bad back. Burke was getting a lot of playing time. As I mentioned, he started two games in the playoffs. He started a game in the World Series. And Campanis comes up to the Bay Area, where Glenn is from, during the offseason. And Glenn thinks it's uh, a meeting to talk about what his role on the team is going to be for 78. And instead, it's Campanis you know, offering to pay $75,000 bonus if Glenn will get married and Glenn says, you mean to a woman and Campana says, yes. And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to have a sham wedding. You know, that wouldn't be fair to me or to the woman, you know, that I'd be marrying. And so after that refusal to go along with the Dodgers plan, um, there start to be articles in the LA papers about how Glenn Burke's days with the Dodgers are numbered. Uh, and the, the media didn't know why, they didn't know the real reason, but uh, Campanis and Lasorda are quoted as saying they're disappointed in Glenn as a as a player. You know, and this is after he's had a, a role on a great team and in the World Series. But all of a sudden they're saying, you know, he can't hit. Um, and so he's traded early in that 78 season to the A's. And there's articles at the time about how devastating this trade was in the Dodger clubhouse. You know, again, this is a famous... Dodger lineup with Steve Garvey, Davey Lopes, Bill Russell, Ron Say, Steve Yeager, Reggie Smith, Dusty Baker, Rick Monday. I mean, and here's a young player, a rookie, who they're, these older players are literally sitting at their lockers crying when Glenn has been traded, when Glenn Burke was traded. And they said it was because he was kind of the life of the clubhouse. Uh, he was funny. He loved to bring his boombox in and play music. He would imitate Lasorda. And over the course of a long season where there was a lot of pressure on this, you know, good team, he kind of took some of that pressure off and made it fun to come into the ballpark. And so they were really upset that he was traded. And Lopes and uh, Baker um, confronted Campanis, uh, asked him why he had been traded, trying to get him to admit it was because he was gay. Uh, and so it was really interesting for me to find out just how um, beloved he was amongst the players on that team and the difference in the attitude between the players and the management of the team yeah i saw that uh quote about he was the life of the team 
on the buses, the clubhouse, everywhere. Uh, that was credited to Davy Lopes in my research. But let's uh, let's stick with Dusty Baker. And I, I spoke about this uh, a while back when the Astros hired Dusty Baker, that he was part of, you know, the invention of the of the high five. T- tell yeah. us how that happened. Like I mentioned it, but I don't know the whole story. So if you yeah. got a little more info, give <laughs> us a little give us a little Dusty Baker stuff. All right. And, you know, everyone, when I interviewed Dusty for the book, this was before he had become the Astros manager. And at the time, he was scouting for the Giants a couple years ago. And he lives in California. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. And so he told me he was going to be in Asheville, North Carolina, scouting a game. And so I drove over and met him, spent three hours interviewing him. And he was just as great as everybody told me uh, he would be. So you've got, you know, a heck of a guy as your manager, but the story goes that it was the end of the 77 season heading into the last month of the season. The Dodgers already had three players who had hit 30 or more home runs. Um, Steve Garvey, Reggie Smith, and Ron say Dusty was stuck on 29 for most of September. But if he were to hit his 30th home run, the Dodgers would become the first team in major league history to have four players with 30 or more homers. Um, it comes down to the last homestand for the Dodgers of the season, which is against the Astros. And so he's just got to hit one home run in these last four games, and they're going to make history. Uh, but the first three games, he's held without a home run. So it comes down to the last game of the season. And pitching for the Astros that day is J.R. Richard, you know, at the height of his <laughs> dominance in the National League. And he's, he owns the Dodgers at that point. Dusty Baker can't hit him. And so he's thinking there's no way he's going to hit this home run in the last game of the year against J.R. Richard. Um, Dusty told me that when he comes up to bat for the first time, he notices these two guys sitting above the Dodger dugout who are talking very loudly and have a bunch of like stack of cash out. You can tell that they're betting on whether Dusty's going to hit this home run or not. Uh, He gets a single, I think, in his first at bat, gets out his second at bat. You can see these guys you know, exchanging money. Tommy Lasorda is telling him, God's not going to let you get stuck on 29. You're going to do it. You're going to do it. And so his third at bat, Dusty just wants to shut up Tommy Lasorda, wants to shut up these two guys sitting on top of the dugout. And he hits his home run, gets his 30th home run off J.R. Richard. The crazy thing is that to lead off that inning, Manny Moda had hit a home run. And Manny Moda never hit home runs. It was his only home run over a 10-year stretch of his career. Hits one off J.R. Richards. Then Dusty Baker hits his home run, and Glenn Burke was on deck, and he said that uh, the crowd was going crazy over this home run. They knew that they had set this record. And so as Dusty crossed home plate, Glenn, in his excitement, raised up his arm, and Dusty slapped it. And so that's considered the first high five. Um, you know, some people say, well, did Dusty really invent it or did Glenn invent it? Dusty Baker told me that he, in his, his uh, mind that anything that's really kind of cool and cutting edge in life typically comes from the Bay Area, which is where yeah. Glenn was from. So he gives Glenn credit for inventing it. The other crazy thing is that Glenn Burke then hits a home run, back-to-back homers. And when he comes back to the Dodger dugout, Dusty raises his hand and Glenn slaps it. So that's the second high five in history. Dodgers hit three home runs that inning, you know, including Manny Moda's only home run over a 10-year period. 
Dusty Baker's history-making home run, Glenn Burke's only home run as a Dodger. So three significant home runs. And what I love is classic baseball fashion. J.R. Richard doesn't give up another run the rest of the game, and he wins the game, even though those three uh, important home runs were hit off of him in one inning. It's the only inning all year that he gave up three home runs. Earlier you spoke about, you know, how we had our baseball cards when we were little kids. And because I'm 50, so I'm just a little younger than you. And on the back, it would, you know, give you, you know, little tidbits about about the players. And you you just brought up a memory of mine of Manny Moda. Like, I've never heard of Manny Moda uh, <laughs> as a player, right. you know, but, you know, I've heard of all the other Dodgers, you know, because the Dodgers were good when I was young and my dad liked them. They were popular. But the thing I know about Manny Moda, and I could be wrong, he was like, like, uh, wasn't he the guy that had, he was like a pinch hitter, right? Yeah, that's basically all he was back then. Like yeah. one of the classic pinch hitters of the 70s. Yeah, that's, I, I don't know if he has some kind of record, uh, but I know that's what he was, that's all he did. He was just a pinch hitter. Uh, but, so we got the, the high five, and then... Yeah. And then traded to Oakland, and from what I see, Oakland didn't even use this guy. I mean, he started two. You said two National League playoff games or the National League championship game, one of the World Series. Yeah, and they trade him to Oakland, and Oakland won't use him. Yeah, he's traded in the '78 season. The Oakland days are a total mess at that point. Charlie Finley's trying to trade the team. Um, they had one game where they had less than 500 fans at the Oakland Coliseum for a game. Uh, Finley is changing the team's uniforms over the telephone. You know, they had the many combinations with the green, yellow, or white jerseys and pants. Uh, he tells his manager he wants to have them hooked up to a headphone so he can make uh, managing decisions <laughs> during the game. He has managers quitting on him all the time, front office staff quitting him on him all the time. MC Hammer is his vice president uh, as a teenager. This is Stanley Burrell, who goes on to become MC Hammer, uh, making mm. decisions for the club. So it's kind of a just a circus atmosphere there. Glenn arrives in 78 and um, starts off hitting well, but then he's injured. You know, and like you said, he doesn't play that much. Uh, in the 79 season, his A's teammates aren't as accepting of Glenn as his Dodgers teammates had been. And I think this is because they hadn't known him coming up through the minor leagues. You know, they hadn't already built relationships with him. And so he starts to feel unwanted there and actually quits the team um, about midway through the season. And then uh, decides heading into the 1980 season to give it another shot because Billy Martin has been named the new manager of the A's. And Glenn thinks this is a good thing. They both, uh, Billy Martin and Glenn Burke, went to the same high school. No, they're not the same age, but... Both went mm -hmm. to Berkeley, Berkeley High School. Uh, he says Billy Martin is a fighter. Glenn considers himself kind of a scrappy fighter type of guy. And so he decides to come back for spring training. But right away, uh, Billy Martin says he's not going to let Glenn, quote unquote, contaminate his team. Uh, he calls him uh, F word in front of the other players on the team and demotes him right away to AAA. And Glenn knows that, you know, he's never going to get called up. And so it's in that 1980 season that Glenn decides uh, to give up uh, professional baseball. And I, I think it's a little unfair to say that 
it was Glenn's decision. I mean, literally it was, he, he quit, but I think it's more accurate to say he was run out of the game. You know, here's the Dodgers give up on him and trade him when they find out who he is. Billy Martin gives up on him and demotes him to the minor leagues when he, uh, you know, not wanting a gay player on his team. So Glenn really had no choice at that point. And uh, so his seat, his career is brief. Uh, he was a rookie starting the World Series in 77. Uh, and by 1980, uh, he's out of the game. Yeah, he said he was driven out of the game by prejudice. And I also read something about, you know, the the Oakland A's teammates. You know, there was, you know, they didn't want to take showers the same time he was. They were just really uncomfortable around them. And uh, I yeah, mean, I don't know. Right. I, I don't have much of opinion on that, but, you know, like. Well, it's it's true. I, I mean, I heard that as well. I interviewed Mike Norris, the old A's, A's pitcher, and he said he was noticing that kind of thing. I mean, it was unfair to Glenn. He wasn't going to, you know, hit on his teammates or something. You know, it's um, and he he actually said when he when he quit that he uh, sensed that his teammates were uncomfortable and he didn't like making them uncomfortable. You know, even though he wasn't doing anything, it just was who he was. But he could sense. Um, what was happening in the clubhouse and he chose to take him out of that situation, take himself out of that situation. Um, and, you know, because of that homophobia of his teammates, he was denied the chance to pursue his career as a major leaguer. You know, and some people want to say, well, he never really was that good of a major league player anyway, but you know, he hit over 300 five times in the minor leagues. He set stolen base records in two different leagues that he played in in the minor leagues. Uh, he was hitting well enough as a rookie to get those starts in the playoffs in the World Series. So uh, Junior Gilliam, one of the Dodgers coaches, said he had the potential to become the next Willie Mays. Uh, Dusty Baker said he had, as an outfielder, he got as good of a jump on a ball as anybody he had ever seen. Um, you know, and in those days, there was room for a great defensive outfielder with a lot of speed. You know, a little different than now where you better hit 30 home runs probably, you know, to mm -hmm. be able to start in the outfield. But that wasn't necessarily the case back then. And so I think given a chance, given support, that that this is a guy that could have had um, a successful major league career. Yeah, I'm not sure if there are any now or if anybody would want to come out now. I'm not sure. I know it wasn't accepted, you know, back then as much as it is now. Like, to me, it's not even really a big deal anymore. But as far as, you know, playing sports and taking showers with each other, I'm not sure how uncomfortable that, it, you know, that is for other people. But uh, another thing that kind of struck me as inappropriate, you know, for the days, just because, you know, the world today has changed. You know, everybody's, I'm even, I'm, I'm even noticing that I'm getting softer as far as, like, you know, you watch older TV shows and you're, man, I can't believe they said that, you know, right. you're kind of, you're kind of getting programmed to be a little more, uh, can't really, you know, respectful towards other people, if you want to say that, but, but, but it said he went on to after baseball, he was a track and field star, I guess he was fast and he went on to, to be in the gay games. I mean, like that doesn't even sound like a real thing. <laughs> yeah. He played in the, um, First two, they basically were like uh, gay Olympics. They took place in San Francisco. There were athletes from all over the world that were invited. Um, and yeah, he, I mean, he, he first and foremost 
his identity uh, was as an athlete. And so even after he's run out of the major leagues, um, he starts playing softball in San Francisco, which had a really strong uh, gay softball league. And you can imagine, here's a guy that was starting in the major leagues. Now he's starting on your softball team, you know, slow pitch softball. <laughs> so he, he was dominating uh, these softball leagues and winning uh, gay world series, national championships in the gay, gay games. Um, he won medals, like you said, in track and field and basketball and softball uh, at both of the first two uh, gay games, which both took place in San Francisco. And so um, that identity as an athlete uh, meant everything to him. And what you see is the, uh, you know, his story is both inspiring in some ways and tragic in other ways. And the, the tragic side starts when he's hit by a car uh, crossing a street in San Francisco and his legs are broken. And at that point, he loses his identity as an athlete. And his sister said it was even more crushing blow to him than, you know, being run out of Major League Baseball was having his legs broken where he couldn't even participate in these, you know, community softball games and basketball games. And he's really sort of left to wonder what he's going to do with the rest of his life. Um, you know, he, like a lot of athletes, he had put most of his eggs in the sports basket, you know, mm -hmm. um, a lot of athletes become coaches after their playing days. But for Glenn, who was black and who was gay, he was facing sort of discrimination on, on two fronts and likely was not going to be hired by a high school or a college uh, to coach a team. There was a lot of discrimination against gay teachers back then. And so he really was uh, floundering at that point in his life. Uh, and, and really that car accident set him on a, a tailspin that he never recovered from. Yeah, that's what I have here, that things went downhill after that injury, started doing cocaine and whatever else. And it's, you know, yeah, you're right, though. You know, your, uh, your, your whole life is being an athlete and that's taken away from you. You know, it's got to be pretty hard. You know, but, but nowadays, like I said, people are a little more acceptive of it. And, and here's some things that I've noticed or that I saw about him. You know, in 2013, he was in the National Gay and Lesbian Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, 2014, they were supposed to honor him at the All-Star Game, but Fox really didn't mention it. And 2015, Oakland honored him in uh, Pride Night, and his brother threw out the first pitch. So, but, but he passed away already, right? Uh, a long time ago. Yeah, he died in 1995. Um, he died of AIDS in 1995. He was living uh, homeless on the streets of San Francisco at that point. Um, and there was some acknowledgement of the history that he had made before he died. There were some reporters that, you know, discovered that this ex-major leaguer um, was dying penniless uh, of AIDS. And so there were some newspaper articles about him back then. But like you said, it really wasn't until a decade or more after he passed away that people started to recognize the significance that Glenn Burke played in Major League Baseball and to sort of celebrate and honor that. Um, he has been inducted into a few different uh, gay halls of fame. There's um, a plaque honoring him on the streets of uh, San Francisco in the Castro district where he lived. Uh, MLB did honor him at that all-star game in a, um, 
press conference that I think the day before the game with his sister. And I think you're right. I don't think they really mentioned it uh, during the telecast itself. The Dodgers and the A's have both acknowledged him within the last couple of years. And so I think he's starting to be talked about um, more recently. Uh, and I hope that the book really will share uh, his full story with the whole new generation of fans. Um, and, and like you said, the country's attitudes um, about LGBT issues uh, and people have changed a lot uh, for the better since the times that Glenn was uh, really struggling as an athlete. And so I think the appetite is there to learn this story um, by people all over the country, uh, whether they're gay or not, are interested in this story of Glenn Burke. Well, it sounds like a great story. Uh, we've got first openly gay uh, Major League Baseball player, the first guy to wear Nikes, the inventor of the high five. What else do you need <laughs> to make a book excellent? So hopefully this will be your third book in the New York Times bestseller. Your your other two made it there, right? Yeah, my first one did. Strong Inside uh, about Perry Wallace made it there. The second Games of Deception got a nice honor, the Sidney Taylor book honor. So I'm yeah, I'm hopeful for this book. You you never know. The other thing that Glenn did that was that was new and different was in 1974 the NCAA changed its rules that allowed uh, athletes if they were professional in one sport to play collegiately in another. And Glenn was the first person to take advantage of this. So while he was a Dodger minor leaguer, he played college basketball at Nevada Reno um, in the 1974-75 season. He didn't play the whole season. Uh, he quit that team and went back to the Dodgers. But uh, again, I mean, here's a person that was innovative, creative, talented. And uh, it's, it's sort of tragic to see how that was all uh, sort of taken away from him and how his life turned out. But uh, one of his teammates, Tito Fuentes, said, to describe Glenn Burke, he said he was like a disco ball, you know, and disco was so popular in the 70s, but just sort of bright and colorful and lighting up the room. And that, that's how he described his personality. Uh, and I think I hope that that shines through in, in the storytelling in the book. All right, guys, the book comes out March 2nd, singled out the true story of Glenn Burke. Andrew, thanks for coming on and sharing your story about your book, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, hi to everybody in Texas. I lived there for uh, four years in the 1980s when I lived in Austin. I'm an Austin High graduate. Went to the 86 All-Star Game at the Astro Dome, which was one of the fun experiences of my life. And uh, so it's good to talk to you and to the Astros fans. <laughs> yeah, it was nice talking to you too. All right, guys. We'll see you next time on Astros Baseball. Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Be sure to subscribe to be alerted when there's a new episode. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.